Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners, fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. You know, here we dig deep and we come up strong. We bravely walk into places where tradition has taught us, hmm, there's some things you just don't talk about, but not at this table. And no matter how hard judgment knocks, it cannot come in. Beloved, here, we live beyond the wreckage. Every week, we experience, educate, encourage, and empower each other. We have a firm belief that everyone not only has a story, but everyone is a story. So we share aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for way too long. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. Each week, we will start right where we are. The dress code is your authenticity and your belief that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. Frankly speaking with Tyra G is one of my most ambitious dreams. I thank God for every remembrance of you and your gifts of ideas, your presence, your encouragement. Those are the gifts that inspire. You know I can't do this without you. Thank you so very much. You're listening to Fairfax, Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia. Cablecast on Cox and Verizon Files, Channel 37, and Comcast, Channel 27 in Reston. And we are webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Should you miss us? No worries. You can catch our archive, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. podcast, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Or you can email me at tyra at tyragarlington.com. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. For five years, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G has been telling a story to touch the minds, the heart, and the spirit. Tell you what, every week we have started where we are. And we are today doing something just a little different. Today, this week, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G is going to the movies. I should have told you to pop some popcorn. But what I should say, I guess, is I'm bringing the movies to radio station. The theme, which I borrowed from NPR, a broadcast that I love to listen to, and the title is, This Movie Changed Me. This week, we're going to look at a movie that indeed changed me, The Color Purple. We will actually hear actual scenes from the movie, Accessorized by expert and creative commentary between NPR podcast host Lily Percy and poet Denez Smith. Now, I know and will not assume that every member of my intergenerational and multicultural listeners 
have seen the movie or read the book. So I'm going to take a few minutes and create our common thought space by summarizing the plot and introducing the characters through the lens of renowned movie critic Roger Ebert. And I quote, There's a moment in Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple when a woman named Celie smiles and smiles and smiles. That was the moment when I knew this movie was going to be as good as it seemed, was going to keep the promise it made by daring to tell Celie's story. It's not a story that would seem easily suited to the movie. Celie is a black woman who grows up in rural South in the early decades of this century, in a world that is surrounded and surrounds her with cruelty. When we first see her, she's a child running through the fields of purple flowers with her sister. But then she comes into clear view and we see she's pregnant. And we learn that her father has made her pregnant and will give away the child as he'd done with, previous, with the previous baby. By the time Celia is married to a cruel, distant charmer, she only calls Mr., she will have lost both her children and the ability to bear children. She will have been separated from her sister, who's the only person on earth who loves her. And she will be living in servitude to a man who flaunts his love for another woman. And yet this woman will endure, and in the end she will prevail. The color purple is not the story of her suffering, but of her victory. And by the end of her story, this film has moved me and lifted me as few films have. It's a great, warm, hard, unforgiving, triumphant movie. And there's not a scene that does not shine with the love of people and the people who made it. The film is based on a novel by Alice Walker, who told Celie's stories through a series of letters, some never sent, many never received, most addressed to God. The letters are her way of maintaining sanity in a world where few others ever cared to listen to her. The turning point in the book and in the movie comes after Celie's husband brings home the fancy woman he's been crazy about for years, a pathetic alcoholic juke joint singer named Suge Avery, who's been ravaged by life yet still has an indestructible beauty. Suge's first words to Celia are, you as ugly as sin. But as Suge moves into the house and Celia obediently caters to her husband's lover, Suge begins to see the beauty in Celia. And there's a scene where they kiss and Celia learns for the first time that sex can include tenderness that she can dare to love herself. A little later, Celie looks in Shug's eyes and allows herself to smile. Excuse me. And we know that Celie didn't think that she had a pretty smile until Shug told her so. That's a central moment in the movie. 
the relationship between Suge and Celie is a good deal toned down from the book, which deals a great excuse me, which deals in great detail with sexual matters. Steven Spielberg, who made the movie, is more concerned with the whole world of Celie's life than he is with her erotic education. We meet many members of the rural black community that surround Celie. We meet a few of the local whites, too, but they're bit players in this drama. Much more important are people like Sophia, Oprah Winfrey, an indomitable force of nature who's determined to marry Harpo, Mr.'s son by a first marriage. When we first meet Sophia hurrying down the road with everyone trying to keep up, she looks like someone who could never be stopped. But she is stopped after she tells the local white mayor to go to hell. And the saddest story in the movie is the way her spirit is forever dampened by the beating and jailing she receives. Sophia is counterpoint to Celie. She's wounded by life. Celie is healed. Suge Avery is another fascinating character played by Margaret Avery, a sweet-faced, weary woman who sings a little like Billie Holiday and has long since lost all of her illusions about men and everything else. Her contact with Celie redeems her by giving her somebody to be nice to. It allows her to get in touch with what is still nice inside herself. Mr. Whose Real Name is Albert is played by Danny Glover, who was the field hand in Places of the Heart. He's an evil man, his evil tempered to some extent by his ignorance. Perhaps he does not fully understand how cruel he is to Celie. Certainly, he seems outwardly pleasant. His smiles and jokes and songs. But then he hurts Celie to the quick. Not so much with his physical blows as when he refuses to let her see the letters she hopes are coming from her long-lost sister. Spielberg breaks down the wall of silence around her, however, by giving her narrative monologues in which she talks about her life and reads the letters she composes. The world of Celie and others is created so forcibly in this movie that their corner of the South becomes one of the, those movie places like Oz, like Tara, like Casablanca that lay claim to their own geography and our imagination. The affirmation at the end of the film is so joyous that this is one of the few movies in a long time that inspires tears of happiness and earns them. And now for our feature. Hello, fellow movie fans. I'm Lily Percy, and I'll be your guide this week as I talk with Denez Smith about the movie that changed them, The Color Purple. If you haven't seen it, don't worry. We're going to give you all of the details you need to follow along. When I think about The Color Purple, the movie I should say, and not just Alice Walker's book, I think about two sisters laughing and playing, enjoying themselves in a field full of purple flowers, completely intoxicated by each other's company and disregarding the world around them. 
When Roger Ebert wrote his review in 1985 of The Color Purple, he started it by saying, there's a moment in Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple when a woman named Celie smiles and smiles and smiles. That was the moment when I knew this movie was going to be as good as it seemed, was going to keep the promise it made by daring to tell Celie's story. It is not a story that would seem easily suited to the movies. Ebert was so right. When you read Alice Walker's book, The Color Purple, it's hard to imagine that it could ever really thoughtfully and truly be portrayed in a movie. And yet that's what Spielberg did in bringing that story to life. The story of Celie and her sister Nettie, of Mr., of Sophia, and of Shug. But most importantly, the story of this Black woman who lived her life fully and imperfectly and truly just all to herself. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Me and Shug, I smile, but I still longing. For more than anything, God love admiration. You saying God is vain? No, no, not vain. Just wanting to share a good thing. I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field and don't notice it. Are you saying it just want to be loved like it's saying in the Bible? Yeah, Celie. Everything want to be loved. Us sing and dance and holler. Just trying to be loved. The movie begins in the early 1900s in the Jim Crow South, and that's where we meet Celie as a young girl. We see her playing with her sister, really relishing those childhood moments and creating this bubble that protects them from the violence and the hatred and the racism outside of their world. And as we see Celie grow, we start to notice that a lot of these things that really sustained her in childhood are the things that are going to sustain her in the rest of her life. Even as she's sold into a marriage with Mr., played by Danny Glover, Celie continues to rely on the love of her sister, on the love that she created for herself, against all odds, that really stems from this resilience that um, she has cultivated through letter writing to God, through reading, and through just the struggle and surviving the struggle. Now what wrong with you? You a low-down, dirty dog. That's what's wrong. It's time for me to get away from you and into creation. And your dead body be just the welcome mat I need. You can't talk to my boy that way. Your boy? Seemed like if he hadn't been your boy, he might have made somebody a halfway decent man. One of the things that I love the most about The Color Purple is that it is entirely about women. Men are supporting characters in this movie and in Alice Walker's book, truly. They are there to serve the women. And even though the men are perpetrators of horrible crimes against these women, they're not the point of the story. The story is really about Celie, played by Whoopi Goldberg, Suge, played by Margaret Avery, and Sophia, played by Oprah Winfrey. All these amazing women who are able to shine regardless of what the world throws at them. One of the most interesting relationships is that between Celie and Suge. It's a romantic relationship and one that is explored far more deeply in Alice Walker's book. But in the movie, we see these beautiful, intimate moments between Suge and Celie that show that beauty lies even in the most cruel of circumstances. 
and that beauty is really theirs to hold. Tell me the truth, Celia. Do you mind if Alva sleep with me? You like sleeping with him? I have to confess, I love it. Don't you? No. No, most time I just pretend like I ain't even there. He don't know the difference. He don't ever ask me how I feel, just never ask me nothing about myself. Just climb on top of me and do his business. Do his business? Do his business? Well, Miss Celia, you sound like he going to the toilet on you. That's what it feel like. Well, then, Miss Celia, that means you still a virgin. Yeah, because don't nobody love me. I love you. You think I so ugly? No, I don't. You ugly. You sure is ugly. And you still <laughs> ugly. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> oh, Miss Seeley, that was just a salt and sugar. Me being jealous of you and Albert. I think you're beautiful. The Color Purple, both the movie and the book by Alice Walker, is at the heart and center of Denise Smith's work. Their books of poetry are powerful and speak of messy, complicated truths, the same way that the story in The Color Purple does. Denise Smith is a Black, queer, HIV-positive writer and performer from St. Paul, Minnesota. And one of the things that Denise was really struck by when they watched The Color Purple was the fact that it was the first time that they were watching a black woman from beginning to end, that they were seeing this black woman's life, their whole life, on screen. I want you to travel back in time with me for a second. Um, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to think about the first time that you saw the color purple, you know, who you were with, how old you were, how it made you feel, and I'm going to look at the clock for 10 seconds, and and I'll chime back in when the 10 seconds are up. So tell me what memories came up for you. Oh, I just thought about, thought about being in my mom's room, where I watched so many movies when I was a kid. Luckily, my mom was a single mom, so we had like a one-on-one relationship, and I was the only child. She really didn't like kids' movies, so I watched all her favorite movies with her, stuff I was probably a little bit too young for at an early age. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know how old I was because it feels like I've been watching The Color Purple my whole life. That's one of my mom's favorite movies, and it's my favorite movie. And I actually just watched it with her again for this on uh, this weekend. Oh, my God. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's I was like, so cool. I told her, I was like, oh, I was like, I have to watch The Color Purple for this interview. <laughs> Do you want to watch it with me? And she said, yeah, come over. And so we just watched The Color Purple. Oh, my God. So when you watched it again with her, did you have like a, a little ritual? Like, do you have food? Like, what did you do? We had wine. We sat on the couch. Her husband, who was also new to the watching experience, was there as well. And we talked the whole way through, mm. like like Black people who have seen a movie a thousand times or for the first time. And it felt right. And it feels like 
of course, I'm watching The Color Purple with my mom, the first person who I ever watched this with, the person who showed me the book, the person who I feel like I've always connected to this story. We cry on the same parts. And so watching the film feels just as right as hanging out with my mother, I guess. And so it was the perfect way to watch it. And I feel like she's always been my watching buddy for that one. I remember in an interview you talked about how you had always, like you said, grown up with this movie and you can't remember really a time where it wasn't around, but that mm-hmm. the book really kind of brought this whole other layer to understanding the characters in the movie. And it, when did you read the book? When I was probably a teenager, probably uh, 14, 15, I want to say. And I never thought to pick up the book because I knew the movie so well. And the book was just tucked in a, in a little shelf we had downstairs that kind of was like for forgotten books in the house. You know, mm. my mom was an avid reader. And one day I picked it up and just thought I was going to, you know, see basically what I saw in the film. And I was amazed at how different it was, how queer it was, how rich yeah. it was, the the form of the letters that we that you lose in the movie a little bit. And it. It was so interesting to see, I guess for me, I think that's the first time maybe Spielberg's hand was illuminated a little bit in the mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. Because uh, it feels like such a black classic to me. And it is. You know, I think it is a black film at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, I completely I completely felt that way watching it now. I watched the movie for the first time as a teenager. And then I read the book and I had the same experience where I was like, where's the sex? <laughs> Yeah. Like, it's not in the movie at all. But it's interesting, you know, knowing what I know about Steven Spielberg, you know, sex scenes aren't really the thing that he does. He often Mm -hmm. does the right up until then or more of a love scene. And the thing that stood out to me watching it this time was actually how... You know, there's music that he uses all throughout the movie that sometimes can be, you know, really to underscore an emotion and, and kind of hit you over the head with, with like, okay, this is what we're feeling right now. But the thing that I love that he did with the the scene between um, Celie and Suge, when Suge dresses her up and she mm-hmm. asks Celie to smile, there's no music. You know, there was a record player playing in the background, and then all we hear are like the crickets. And you're just so present to the two of them. And then I thought, okay, this is kind of him showing us that intimacy, that sexuality, that that this is as close as we're going to get to a sex scene in this movie. As close. And then that's the crazy part when you read the book, because then you're like, oh, wow, they were whole lesbians. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) There were were queer things going on. And I, I wonder... I don't know, Hollywood maybe just wasn't ready for that at the time. But I think not only do you lose the queerness in the translation from book to film, I think the one of the things I feel most cheated out of is the complicated redemptive arc between Celie and Mister. Yes, um, yes. That happens later in the book, right? It's such an easy out to make Mister the clean villain that he is. And let's be clear, like if there is a villain in the book, you know, Mister should be a nominee. Yeah. But I feel like more, I guess the older I get, the more tenderness I have towards villains and characters and in, in like books and stories like that I think about Toni Morrison's work right and I was thinking about this watching The Color Purple I, I was 
I, I was brought to Morrison. I was just thinking about what it means to tell black stories um, about stories in which even in times that where would be where racism or where we can say like whiteness in America still looms in the background of these stories, right? And the mailman and the shopkeepers and Miss Millie and all these folks. The color purple at the end of the day is about the relationships between black folks. Yes. And I think we yeah, when I have that lens and when I think about even folks in my own family, right? I guess I'm saying that that film helps me or maybe looking at my family helps me have tenderness for those characters right mr is what's happening to him right what happened to mr's father to make him raise mr like that what happened to all these men that are doing all this wrong to these women in this movie right what makes what makes um suge kind of a dangerous character to anybody that loves her right because i think she's allowed to be this like wild free mm-hmm. um manifestation of love and freedom and carefree and oh i'm suge and of course i'm sex and i'm here to liberate you but but she ends up scarring celia in the process in that story you know um but also you're able to say these are black people kind of making it through the only way they know how. And of course they hurt each other. And of course, I think the book does it the best. They found ways to love each other through that hurt that the world sometimes made them do and the hurt that they chose to do themselves. You told Harpo to beat me. All my life I had to fight. I had to fight my daddy. I had to fight my uncles. I had to fight my brothers. Girl, child ain't safe in a family man's. But I ain't never thought I had to fight in my own house. I love Hoppo. God knows I do. But I kill him dead before I let him beat me. Now, you want a dead son-in-law, Miss Seeley? You keep on advising him like you doing. This life be over soon. Heaven lasts always. Girl, you ought to bash Mr. head open and think about heaven later. It reminds me of something that you said um, in Tin House. You know, they asked you, like, if you could correspond with any fictional character uh, through, like, letter writing, who would it be? And you picked Celie. And I just loved what you said, though. You said, because her letters to God and her sister are such vital and holy texts to me. Mm-hmm. I would love to be her pen pal and to help her plot on ways to win over women and bury her no good husband. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about what Celie means to you and like why you love her character so much. I think Celie reminds me of so many women in my family who, who found each other. Um, and who maybe found them, and hopefully, and probably later. I think that's the thing about Celia is that she, her freedom comes late. And I've seen that with so many women in my family where they find themselves after living under and for these men for so long, right? With these sort of multiplying and 811 kids running around them. But um, Celie, you know, I, I, I just flat out like see like my grandmother, you know, and people who carved out tenderness um, while living in these complicated homes. 
Seeley was always just so beautiful to me. I love, I was just saying that to my mom. I was like, oh, it's like, it's weird that they try to cast Seeley as the ugly girl in this whole yes. film because I love Whoopi Goldberg's exactly. face. Exactly. She's movie. played by oh. Whoopi Goldberg and she's so beautiful. And especially when she smiles, it lights up the whole screen. I don't yes. understand it. And I think I'm, I'm always going to cheer for the person who, who had to learn how to smile. And I'm going to cheer for her smile all the way through. And, and that's why I cry every time in that film, right? Even the two parts I cry the most are the last 10 minutes, right? Mm. It's God is trying to tell you something. Yes. Um, which is uh. such a release, um, right? But there's that bitter, bitter moment where Celie can't be happy for Suge because she still wants her, yes. her little something, yeah. her little return. And then we finally get her and her sister in the field. And of course, and it's the credits and you're crying. And <sighs> every time I'm crying right now. But <laughs> <laughs> it's so powerful. Yeah. And I think the because Seeley maybe for me was the first type of story where I think you get to see a character all the way through. Yeah. Where you get to love somebody's whole life. I think that's why. And I think I love those type of stories. Right. Like even when I'm going to my grandparents and my uncles and stuff like that, the way they tell their stories, even though I wasn't there, I get to love their whole life a little bit. Yeah. And I love that type. I, get, I think that's what I love is I feel like. The Color Purple for me maybe captures stories, you know, stories that have existed in my family for centuries. And I get that glimpse into the lives of people I've loved that I that I just wasn't there to get to imagine um, or take part in. And one of the things I love about the movie is the fact that, you know, there's a way in which the story could have been told as her as the victim all throughout. But she's not, right? She mm. She's, like you said, she is learning about herself all throughout. and And she is always true to herself um mm-hmm. she's always embodies love and she learns when she messes up yeah she learns when she messes up exactly what she right? does mess up she learns she does mess up right she tells harpo to beat sophia well that scene in particular stood out to me this time because it's i, I don't think i'd realized the line that's that sophia says to her you know she says like if you keep on advising him essentially like, um, he's going to be a dead son-in-law right she tells him that. Mm-hmm. she tells Celie that but then Celie says, this life be over soon. Heaven lasts always. And then Sophia says, girl, you better bash Mr.'s head open and think about heaven think later. Think about heaven later. Which yeah. I laughed about at first. And then I was like, así es. That's, that's the truth right there. Like, there's so much truth, too, in, in all of the imperfections that are shown in the movie. And then the dialogue, the dialogue this time around watching it, it struck me as there's not just humor and sadness. There's just so much truth in it. Yeah, there's, I, I mean, that is the sort of blues note of The Color Purple, right? Is yeah. that there is that everything is kind of, the good is tinged with the sad of it, and the sad always finds its way to, to jubilee or to some type, of, some type of joy, some type of release, some type of desire, right? I think, like, the characters are, like, kind of always or never in crisis. You know, they, yeah. they sway in and out of it, right? Yeah. And we see the long narrative, right? Like, how how powerful is it that we, that the scene you just froze, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you better bash Mrs. Head in and think on heaven later. It's, like, probably chronologically, like, 30 years after that, maybe? Or it's a long time, or, like, 20-some years after that, where Celie's holding that blade over Mr.'s neck with Suge, you know, making sure she doesn't actually cut him. It takes the it takes that many years for that note to finally sink in and for Celie to reach that breaking point. Any more letters come? Could be. Could be not. Who's to say? Celie, no! I can't you. 
But until you do right by me, everything you think about is gonna crumble. Don't do it, Miss Seal. Don't trade places with what I've been through. We see how long a feeling, how long a prayer, how long a survival can last in that way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and of course, then it makes the feelings messy. It makes the story complicated. It, it's too, it's, it, it can never be clean as we want it to be. I think, you know, I think the, the movie, I think we've talked about this a couple of times, right? The movie definitely shines that up a little bit yeah. and makes it a little cleaner. But I think... Alice Walker wrote such a story that that's why it's even even as clean as Hollywood can try to make it. It's still a messy truth. You know, Dennis, I feel like everything you just said encapsulates your writing, because when I read your your poetry, I feel like that's what you do. I mean, you tell the truth about sex, about longing, about intimacy, about pain about racism. I mean, you just speak so many truths in the way that you talked about the blues uh, as it's shown in the movie. I, I think that, does that resonate at all with you? Because when I read your poetry, I feel the same way. Yeah, I think, you know, part of the prevailing, like, uh, thought in my poems is like everything can be is going to be true at once, you know? <laughs> <laughs> just like um, life, right? all, all the yeah. feelings it's, all yeah. the time. Exactly. You know, how are you is a very complicated question, right? Because yeah. it's just like, you know, do you want to hear about the ways in which my life is blessed and the ways my life is cursed and mm-hmm. the ways my life is working itself out? And I, I think to invite that type of messiness to the poems, I think, you know, it's not an invention of mine. I think it's it's the that's the work that I found most compelling when I find it other places. And so and so I follow that that note that people like Alice Walker have laid out to embrace that high, low, everything feeling of life and, and to let life, you know, exists um, best within that brilliant complication that lives somewhere between the joy and pain of a single experience, you know, or or of a multitude of experiences, Mm -hmm. right? And like, and to let that life then be transformed by the lives around it. You know, that's what Celie's doing the whole time. Every woman she meets, every person she encounters transforms her life in so many ways. And I think that's also what I'm trying to do in poems a little bit, both as I, I think in the poems too, right? Trying to talk about that intimacy and like how we get through this together and amongst each other. And also how, I guess how I approach being a reader too, right? Is yeah. that like, I'm trying to read and be transformed by the writers that I'm reading right now, right? And, and that that also is a kind of like intimacy and love and community making too, right? To say that like, hey, like this is whose work I moved through that has like refigured me and who I have to like encounter my own work in new ways too. Mm. You know, I'd love for you, if you feel like it, if you feel inspired to read actually a poem that we talked about before we started recording, um, because it reminded me of Celie so much, Waiting on You to Die So I Can Be Myself. Yeah, um, I would totally read that poem. Um, This is a hard one to write. It took a long time. It took years. All right. Waiting on you to die so I can be myself. A thousand years of daughters, then me. What else could I have learned to be? Girl after girl after giving herself to herself. One long ring shout name. Monarchy of copper and cold shoulders. The body, too, is a garment. I learned this best from the snake undulating out of her pork rind dress. I crawl out of myself into myself 
take refuge where I flee. Once I snatched my heart out like a track and found not a heart, but two girls forever playing slide on the porch in my chest. Who knows how they keep count? There could be a single girl doubled and joined at the hands. I'm stalling. I want to say something without saying it, but there's no time. I'm waiting for a few folks I love dearly to die so I can be myself. Please don't make me say who. Bitch, the garments I'd buy if my baby wasn't alive. If they woke up at their wake, they might not recognize that woman in the front making all that noise. Mm, that was beautiful. Thank you. Woo. Thank you. Mm. So I know you said this took you years to write, and I'm, I don't know that you had Seely or anything from The Color Purple in mind, but, you know, reading your poetry alongside watching this movie, this poem just really it stood out to me, especially when you talk about Two Girls Forever playing slide on a porch in my chest, and I think about Celie and Nettie, the two mm. sisters at the kind of core of this movie. I don't think I had them in mind, but right there are lessons from them in that poem, right? I think, uh, like, even in the writing of it, you know, I wrote that poem so many times because I had to get it right, and it's a poem I don't take lightly. And so uh, everything about it kind of had to be perfect because it's trying to say a very complicated thing about people I love very, very, very much. And it's also trying to not say at the same time, right? I think about revision. I think about how many times Nettie had to write that story down for Celie. You know, how many holidays she wrote down, you know, me and your children are alive. How many yeah. times through she... All the letters she, that Celie never received. All the letters. Until... Never received. Yeah, years later. Dear Celie, the reason why I'm in Africa is because one of the missionaries that was supposed to go with Corrine and Samuel to help with the children and setting up the school suddenly married a man and I came in her place. I wrote, I wrote a, a letter, letter to you almost, almost every day on this ship. On my first side of the Africa coast, something struck in me, in my soul, Celie, like a large bell. Then I just vibrated. time since I had time to write, but always, no matter what I'm doing, I'm writing you. Dears. Feely, bring me a cool drink. And every time she's hoping that the first, that that's the letter that gets through. You have yeah. to tell that story so many times. And when you do write something so many times, you perfect it and you find new ways into it. You're different every time you come to write that. And so writing that poem over so many times, it went through so many different drafts that, that I wouldn't be able to recognize that first poem as this poem, probably. I know I wouldn't. They're not even the same words. Um, the only thing that stuck after after a while was the title. And I wonder, and I know we learned from that, right? The Toy Derricotte 
talks about this thing called the hard poem, right? The poem that the poet is always going to kind of return to over over your life because it's wow. the story that won't leave you. You know, oftentimes a wound of, of a pain and you revisit the site every time transformed. And I, and I think about, you know, stuff like my grandfather. I think about my diagnosis. I think, you know, these other things that I continue to trouble in my work. And every time with new clarity or with new mystery, with a new set of tools that I'm operating on that time. And the same way Seely took up a long letter writing, right? She wrote her whole life to God. And I think part of the brilliant craft of that book, right, is you see Seely's syntax and her words and her thoughts becoming more complex as she grows, right? Yes. We know Seely's whole life. And I think it's that sort of thing that we sometimes know about a poem for a writer, right? Like that poet might have worked on that thing, you know, who were they all the times they returned to that as that thing transformed, right? Like that's what we see when we come to the work. How have they thought about this thing forever? Yeah. And that's so beautiful. Oh, it is. And as as you were talking right now, I was thinking about how, you know, also Celie's view and perception of God changed, right? Throughout throughout the movie, you see mm-hmm. she no longer views God as a child. At the beginning of the movie, when you see her writing, when you hear her writing, God, these letters. You know, it's a very different God that Celie believes in from the beginning of her life toward the end of her life. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious. I know that you grew up yourself in a in a religious family. And I'm curious if there's anything in this movie that has really challenged your own views of God and, and how you see them. When I look at it, I don't think about it as a movie about God. And God is so many things in that movie. God is also a weapon, right? What does Celie's dad tell her? The second he takes away that baby, you better not tell nobody but But God. God. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so in this film, God has both been a pen pal and a savior. He's also been a threat. You know, he's also been, you know, redemption and a bridge, you know, but God, he transformed so much in our lives. And I think, you know, maybe in that way, I'm grateful for the color purple for never letting God be a static thing. Yeah. Um, for letting and for letting everybody, you know, in this film, I would say everybody in that film, for the most part, probably identifies as a Christian. But they all have these so very different relationships to the church, right, and to God. I think um, part of the challenge of Christianity, especially when you grow up in it, is you do kind of get sold, for the most part, this monolithic God, right? Yeah. And you know, you're kind of like told like you're supposed to have your own personal relationship with God but like you know I would I would argue that you're not supposed to complicate what that relationship is too much and I I love that it doesn't it doesn't try to evangelize us you know and how these characters interact with God yeah 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 no I agree it's more nuanced I think that's why I loved I loved it spoke to me now as someone who sees God in in the joy and the sad of life right and these moments that we share together with each other like I find God in those moments with each other I know what it like, Miss Seely. Wanna go somewhere and can't. I know what it like, wanna sing. Have it beat out you. I wanna thank you, Miss Seely, for everything you've done for me. I remember that day I was in the store, Miss Millie. I was feeling real down, I was feeling mighty bad. And when I see you, I know day is a God. I know day is a God. And one day I was going to get to come home. 
you know, before we started recording and I was telling you that I'd love for you to just, you know, recite some of your poems, read some of your poems from your collections. You mentioned that, you know, Seely for you is so much about imperfection. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just curious if you'd want to talk a little bit more about that. I mean, it was in relationship to the poem that I had talked to you about, which is called The Note on the Body, which also spoke to me. But, yeah, I'm just curious to hear more about that imperfection that resonated with you. Yeah, I think um, everybody in that story, let's say, because we're also talking about the book, too, exactly. is, is so imperfect, is so flawed. And, and for that, it makes them more beautiful, right? You know, I think, I mean, see, we were talking about Celie learning from her mistakes, right? Like, Celie, like causes Sophia pain indirectly through Harpo, but she learns from that and she she really grows into this spirit of wanting to treat treat the folks that are good to her well, you know, she wanted to take care of the family and she took care of people that she probably hated, their guts too, right? Celia yeah. raised all them 50, 11,000 multiple, you know, kids. <laughs> the kids with no um, name. <laughs> the, yep. the, the, the kids with no name, you know, she was cooking for all of them. She, she can't miss this black ass alive, you know? But, you know, I guess Celia for me, she, I mean, if there is going to be a perfect person in the color purple would be Celia, but, you know, it's that speech at the end, right? I may be poor, black, ugly, you know, but I'm here. Everything you've done to me, already done to you. I'm poor. Black. I may even be ugly, but dear God, I'm here. I'm here. Hey, hey you'll be back. <laughs> hey, hey, what you gonna do? Hey, hey you'll be back. And I think that's it. You know, I may not have nada nothing. I may be the worst thing in the world, but I'm it. I'm here. I exist. And I take that on for Seeley, right? And I think maybe, you know, that embrace of like, you know, I'm just here lets me also revel in Suge's imperfection and love the mess out of her messy self. You know, it lets me, it lets me connect with Sophia. It lets me have tenderness, you know, in hindsight towards Mr. and the things he went through. The poem was written, I think, in a moment where I like I very much needed to write that poem mm, um, for, for yourself. my own damn saving, yeah. right? You know, and I have a weird relationship to it because, like, just from a craft level, I look back at the poem and I see the eighty thousand different things I would do with the poem. Um, <laughs> You know, and so I shake my head a little bit at it. But I know that poem has also like a lot of people love that poem and it's Mm, been there for them. And I think I also I think part of what I like in poetry, my own and others, is space for the imperfect work, for that tender thing that just needed to be said in that time. And I don't think everything has to reach for imperfection if it reaches for like a a true and necessary feeling in that moment of creation. So, yeah, so I was like, I've tried to have like also have some tenderness for like my little past self and be like, you know what, girl, it's not the best poem, but 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 it's a good poem. It's all right. <laughs> all right. I'm gonna read it. OK, right, here go. A note on the body. Your body still your body. Your arm still wing. Your mouth still a gun. You tragic, misfiring bird. You have all you need to be a hero. Don't save the world, save yourself. You worship too much and you worship too much. When prayer don't work, dance, fly, fire. This is your hardest scene. 
when you think the whole sad thing might end, but you live. Oh, you live. Every day you wake, you raise the dead. Everything you do is a miracle. Hmm. Thank you. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's the, the last question I would ask you. I'm, I'm really curious, especially knowing that the color purple turned 35 this year, right? Um, and they re-released it in theaters just to have special screenings for it and and um, kind of emphasize what a powerful movie that this has meant for so many people, right? But especially the Black community. Um, I'm just curious for you now, watching this movie with your mom this weekend, is there anything that resonates differently for you? You know, how have you grown with this movie as you've gotten older? You know, the more you've watched it, like, how have you grown together? Hmm. Wow. Um, hold on. I'm going to sit with this one for a second. You know, it's kind of like how you get to know a thing well. I feel like a master at the color purple, right? And I feel like it teaches <laughs> me about like, so, you know. Yes. And so, you know, you you really learn like the, the, its choices too, right? Like, of course, we needed a song right here. Of course, there had to be flower. You know, of course, we needed to see Celia and Nettie plotting in the shadows. You know, of course, like all, like, you know it so well that it starts to make sense of you right back at you right and you yeah. give it part, I don't know it's just my favorite movie right <laughs> <laughs> yeah it makes sense back like it makes sense together the two of you are, are kind of reflecting each other mm-hmm. and every time you're you're going back to it it still lets you know that there's a feeling right I think I use it to check that I'm still real right mm. when I when I cry at the same parts it lets me know that even the old pains are worth turning over you know I think it, it gets it lets you live with your ghosts better it lets you live with your own traumas and triumphs a little bit better when you when you still feel touched by that thing the fact that the color purple still moves me to tears the same way it did that I don't know if it did the first time I think I was probably too young to know to cry mm. um, but it feels like I've been crying yeah. at this movie my whole life and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to get to like bask in this ultimate human thing when I read and when I watch and when I listen to that soundtrack you know everything about the color about all of its manifestations play movie book all standing on Walker's wonderful story that teaches us so much about how to make a good story, how to write good work, mm. how to make a thing that can move people even when it moves across genres. That's such a powerful thing. She wrote the crap out that book. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, she wrote the crap out that book. It has made so much money and yep. moved so many people. What a good, good thing, you know, and amen for it. And so I just feel, I don't even know if I, if I'm, if I didn't groan with it, right? You know, I'm probably still rising to it. You know, it's like one of those things where like, it is like a, it's a God piece of art for me, right? It's like, it's on my, my top five everythings and it ain't number two, three, four, or five, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so God bless the color purple on Alice Walker, even Steven Spielberg a little bit for making it into this movie that I watch. It's the one movie I have downloaded on my computer. You know, that's just how that I feel a lot. That's how I've grown with it. You know, it is like the one permanent thing I've decided to have in my life. I ain't got no man, but I do have the color purple. Denez Smith is a black, queer, HIV-positive writer and performer from St. Paul, Minnesota. Their wonderful books of poetry are Homie and Don't Call Us Dead, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. 
Amblin Entertainment, The Goober Peters Company, and Warner Brothers produced The Color Purple, and the clips you heard in this episode are credited entirely to them. DreamWorks released the movie soundtrack, and the incomparable Quincy Jones both co-produced the movie and composed all of its music. Next time on This Movie Changed Me, I'll be talking about the breakup classic, The Way We Were, starring Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. You've got a week to watch it before our next conversation. And there we were. What'd you think? Did you make popcorn? We listened to the color purple, its essence, through three lens. That of a movie critic, that of a radio personality, Ms. Lily Perez, and of a poet, Mr. Denez Smith. I kept thinking, you really have nothing to add, Tyra. But what would you say to Celie now? How would you encourage her? And a couple of things came to mind. I want to start with a quote from coach and author Iana Vansant. And I would say to Celie, If by chance no one has told you that they love you today, I would be honored to be the first to say, I love you today. I love you because you are and have been so willing to grow. And my, how you have grown. You have grown from struggling to searching from trying to do something to learning how to do something. You have grown from fear to having faith, to demonstrating your courage. You have grown in many ways, consistently demonstrating your willingness and courage to take the next step, the step toward the profound and divine wisdom buried within yourself. The step toward knowing more about you. That's why I love you. You are profoundly divine. For those of you who like Seely, may have asked the question, is this all there is? Maybe you said, I'm just tired of being tired. Maybe you just said, Jesus. Well, When you're feeling utterly down and discouraged, I want you to remember, you're a miracle. You are important. You are stronger than you feel. Stronger than depression, stronger than suicide. You are smarter than you think. You have multiple intelligences. You are more beautiful than you believe. Think about this. 
The ugly duckling was always a swan. Others tried so hard to make her be a duckling. As she was growing up, she looked different. She had different skills. She began to believe it herself. She was so unhappy until one day in the water's reflection, she saw herself in all her glory. She was a beautiful swan. Most importantly, you are more loved than you can ever believe. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia. Cablecast on Cox and Verizon Fios, Channel 37, and on Comcast, Channel 27, in Reston. And my friends, we are webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening. Should you miss us, don't forget. Frankly Speaking with Tara G Podcast can be heard wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you want to reach out, email me at tyra at tyragarlington.com. Your seat at the table is guaranteed, and I look forward to next time. In the meantime, please treat yourself like someone you love. I love you. This is Tyra, and I'm listening.